Scriptures. I'd have you turn back again in your Bibles to the first chapter of the first letter of Peter. First Peter, chapter 1. I may often bring us back to the third verse throughout the whole series. What a banner of truth is strung across the heading of Peter's letter in these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the, His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, how could we ever express adequate praise for the offering of Your Son for our great salvation? In His death, we find the penalty for our sins fully paid. And in His resurrection, we find a living hope in the One who even now shepherds our souls and secures our hearts and minds for all eternity. Blessed be the name of Him who has caused us to be born again. Glory, honor, praise to Him who sits on the eternal throne and reigns supreme over all, even us. Amen and amen. During the early years of my spiritual journey, to my shame, there were whole periods of time when I did not feed upon the Word of God in any real consistent or disciplined way. But as I look back upon my own seasons of waywardness, I can thank the Lord that the role of sacred and gospel music was a mainstay in preserving my soul. The lyrics of the best music and even the ballads of down-home, southern-style gospel music embedded in my memory became a vehicle for God's grace in my life for reminding me of His truth and the promises of His Word. And just this week, thinking about this living hope we have in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, reaching back in my memory all the way to the early 1970s, I found myself, there was no one around, but found myself beginning to sing the hope-filled words of, of a man by the name of Dallas Home. In a work he entitled simply, Rise Again. Some of you may remember it was written in a style as if Jesus himself were speaking. It goes like this. Go ahead, drive the nails in my hands. Laugh at me where you stand. Go ahead. Say it isn't me. The day will come and you will see. Because I'll rise again. There's no power on earth can keep me down. Some of you remember that? Probably not with my help. (laughs) Oh yes, I'll rise again. Death can't keep me in the ground. Go ahead. Mock my name, my love for you is still the same. Go ahead and bury me. 
But very soon I will be free because I'll rise again. There's no power on earth can keep me down. Yes, I'll rise again. Death can't keep me in the ground. Go ahead. Say I'm dead and gone. You will see that you were wrong. Go ahead and try to hide the sun. But all will see. I'm the one because I'll rise again. There's no power on earth can keep me down. Yes, I'll rise again and come to take my people back. Praise the Lord. You know, I think had those lyrics been available in the hearing of the Apostle Peter, he would have said a heartfelt amen as well. Maybe uh, with tears kind of wetting his beard. Recalling that time in his life when he felt, must have felt, that all hope was gone. When all he could see was the dark dread of that cold night by the fire when he turned away from the very one who loved him supremely, the one who was about to die all alone on a garbage dump called Golgotha. You remember the story. That night, a little girl had pointed to Peter and accused him of being a follower of Christ. And after a while, it drew the mob's attention. And what did Peter do? As Matthew records it, and I quote, He, Peter, began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. The next thing that is recorded is that a rooster immediately crowed. What do you think must have been the night sweats the deep fears in the soul of Peter for the next three longest days of his life until Jesus rose again. The angel messenger of Christ, you will remember, at the tomb addressed the women. The tomb was empty. And the angel gives them a clear instruction after saying, He is not here. He is risen. And then these words. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. It's interesting. Could have named all 11 remaining disciples. Judas has gone from the picture. Go tell my disciples. And Peter, he's going ahead of you. There you will see him, just as he told you. Tell the disciples, the angel said, but do not fail to tell this one particular disciple. Be sure and tell Peter. You may think he's no longer one of mine. In fact, he may know himself to be an abject failure as a follower of mine. But go and tell my disciples, but most specifically and personally tell Peter. Tell Peter. Tell Peter. In so many words, or may I say, as perhaps Peter himself came to understand, that when all other hopes fade, 
into dark disappointment and despair. That Christ, as long as He lives, and as long as He was in the first place the cause of my being born again, then He, Christ Himself, becomes an unshakable foundation of a living hope that can never disappoint and never, never, never forsake His own, regardless of how great the failure. Earthly friends may prove untrue. Some of you have experienced that pain of earthly friends proving untrue. Doubts and fears may assail. But there is one who still loves and cares for you because what? Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Aren't you glad that we don't have to do as one politician like to used to say, keep hope alive? We don't have to keep our hope alive. Our hope lives. Hope is the, well, it's the outstretched arms of God Himself and the hands that that lay hold of us, uh, the hands that lift us up, the the hands that will carry us home. They're nail-scarred hands. Our hope lives in the resurrected body, in the person of Jesus Christ, whoever lives. It is even now, the Scripture says, praying for us. Now, I want you to think of the truth that we've just expanded upon there again in verse 3 for what it is. Last Lord's Day, I called it the ground of all hope or the foundation of all hope, or if you will, the fountainhead of all that is true hope, the source of all hope in the worst of times. Have you gotten it by now? It is Jesus Christ Himself. Biblical hope, synonymous with the name of our risen Lord. A living hope, He says in verse 3, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If it wasn't so cold out, I'd think it was Easter. But the resurrection message is one we need every day of the week. So we have laid that foundation in our first study for hope. And we've reviewed it again in these past moments. Now I want you to see what I'm calling today the pillars of hope. You know, Peter, a little bit later in the epistle will liken the body of Christ, the church, the redeemed, as a building made up of living stones. God's into a building project with His people. And we've laid the foundation. It's Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the ground and foundation of our hope. But now we need some superstructure. A sure foundation, yes, but strong pillars arise in the text of God's grace, securing the lives of His redeemed. What Peter calls in verse 1, or depending upon your translation, maybe it falls into verse 2, but he identifies the redeemed as the chosen or the elect of God. So, get this visually if you can. Verse 3, foundation. 
living hope, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see four pillars anchored to that foundation arising in verse 2. Yes, I'm preaching verse by verse, but you notice this morning we're going in reverse. We've looked at three, we're coming up to verse 2, because I see in those if I could put it delicately, those pregnant phrases, four of them in verse 2. Here they are as pillars for our hope. Number one, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Number two, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, pillar number three, he mentions obedience to Jesus Christ. And fourthly, a people sprinkled with blood, what he calls later in the letter the precious blood of Christ. Now, I see what could easily be four whole sermons on each of those phrases, and that just may be the case. The first of the four, and we'll get no further, I'm sure, in the moments that remain. The foreknowledge of God. And this is a a statement of truth. This is a doctrine that I think one of the most tragic things I've detected over the years in my own preaching of the Word of God, that, that God's people in general know way too little about this very blessed and significant term, the foreknowledge of God. And so I've decided to dedicate the balance of our study at least this morning to that word because you see it has such wondrous implications for really securing your peace and your confidence in Christ and so let's be looking at this first pillar foreknowledge or the foreknowledge of God note that this biblical and theological term foreknowledge links itself inseparably to verse 1, and the matter of divine election. We've already pointed that out. These scattered aliens all over the various neighborhoods of the known world, Christians scattered by persecution, he calls them collectively the elect or the chosen. And then he says, right at the beginning of verse 2, that that election, that being chosen of God, is according to The foreknowledge of God. Now, there are a great host of very sincere believers, and there are even some biblical scholars, who would define the term foreknowledge as it's used here as meaning nothing more than the fact that God knows everything before it happens. You can see how they conclude that. Foreknowledge, it almost self-defines That is, that God does indeed have a knowledge beforehand, a foreknowledge of all that will happen. Now, let me say, that is certainly a true statement. And I'll tell you why it's true. Because foreknowledge, in part, relates to God's attribute of omniscience. Having all knowledge. But many conclude way too soon, without enough thought, without enough cross-referencing, without enough seeing the word as it's used throughout the New Testament in its context. Many conclude that the term foreknowledge 
is just another word for omniscience. So they would say uh, that those who are chosen or elect of God, verse 1 again, are those who God knew in his omniscience. Those whom God knew would choose him. In other words, many conclude that God chooses those he knows will choose him. And on the basis, he causes them to be born again. But there is, however, some real problems with that view, I believe, when it comes to rightly understanding the far more glorious doctrine of the foreknowledge of God, which relates to the very nature of salvation itself. Let me say this. The Bible clearly does not teach that we are saved by God's omniscience. That we're saved because of something he knows we will do sometime in the future, which then becomes the cause of our salvation. We're not saved by his omniscience, let alone by anything we would ever do in the future to save ourselves. If you will think about this, my friends, and you know, it's early in the morning, but it's still time to think, to love the Lord your God with all your mind. When you think about it, you only have three options when it comes to what you will choose to believe about salvation itself. Here they are. Take your pick, I guess I could say, but I love you too much to leave you there. You will either be convinced, as many are, by the way, that man, at the end of the day, really does just save himself. That it's up to him to get himself saved. That's one view. Or, you will believe that man works along with God to save himself. That it's God plus me brings about my ultimate salvation and forgiveness of sins. Or you will study God's Word, and I'll be up front with my bias here as one who has studied God's Word. You will discover that salvation is completely of the Lord and that it is by His grace alone. Now, while God justifies a sinner by faith alone, surely you understand that the author of that faith is not fallen man himself. The author and the perfecter of our faith, the Bible says, is Jesus Christ alone. You say, I put my faith in Christ and I know I'm saved. And all I ask you to pause to think about is where did that faith come from? Did it originate from your own fallen heart? A heart by nature in rebellion against God? Or were you saved purely and completely 110% by grace through faith that was not of yourself, but was the gift of God? You see, every sinner must first be brought to life out of death. Every sinner who is spiritually blind even to the gospel truth must receive their sight in order to come into His marvelous light. Every sinner 
must be born again by the unilateral operation of God's own Holy Spirit. It is what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, and I believe the emphasis was on his second word, you must be born again. How's it happen, Nicodemus says. And Jesus doesn't give him anything to do. Isn't that interesting? In order to get saved. He said this, Nicodemus, is like the wind blowing. The wind being the Holy Spirit. Bringing to life that those whom God commands to life. In an unmistakable way, Peter says there in verse 3, doesn't he? Will you grant this much if you have questions still? If you you just take the word of God as it says in verse 3, because this is what it says in my Bible, that being born again is something God causes. And not we ourselves. The sinner who is justified by faith, you see, is a sinner who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit so that he may most certainly come to faith. And while the sinner does indeed turn to Christ, he does so only when his bondaged will is first set free by an act of sovereign grace. You see, we stand to lose too much blessing If you see this term foreknowledge as nothing more uh, than an expression of God's omniscience, it is so much more. And the distinction is this. In God's omniscience, it is correct to say that God knows everything even before it happens. There is nothing he does not know. That is, no fact can exist in eternity past in the present, this afternoon, or in the eternity to come, that our almighty, omniscient God does not already know. That is the doctrine of God's omniscience, and it's glorious. But foreknowledge, it's not the same word. Foreknowledge is something different. It is much more than mere omniscience. On a very personal level, When rightly understood, the truth of the gospel will be all the more glorious to you when more glorious to you than that which just the doctrine of omniscience provides. You see, again, omniscience means that God knows all the facts. But foreknowledge means that God knows me. It is not facts. It is a relationship before time. He knows me intimately, personally, relationally, lovingly. Did you know I was loved before time? I was loved before my parents had a chance to love me. The Bible teaches I was loved before time. I was redeemed in a certain sense. In the established plan of God in eternal eternity past. How come some of us like to say things like this? Some cliches are quite wonderful, actually. When he was on the cross, I was on his. Do you believe that or not? Because that's what foreknowledge means. It means that 2,000 years ago when he went to the cross and paid the price, he was pray, paying that price for 
persons that He knew and later would predestine. That's another biblical term for another week. Foreknowledge means when He was on the cross, I was on His mind. In fact, I declare to you, and you have to check this out for yourself, that's your duty, by the way. The term foreknowledge, everywhere it appears in the Bible, always is not about facts. It is about relationship. Right here in this first chapter, the term is used concerning the relationship the Father had with His Son before He came to earth. Look at verse 20. Now, the King James there employs the English word foreordained, but it is the same Greek word that they translated as foreknowledge there in verse 2. See there in verse 20, you see that Peter is saying Christ was in a relationship to His Father, and in the course of redemptive history, it was ordained between the three of them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was known, was ordained to come into this world through the portals of the virgin's womb. Clearly, foreknowledge in this verse does not mean that the Father knew a bunch of facts about His Son. He knew His Son. He loved His Son. He gave this one He loved an only begotten Son for our sins. You see, Peter wants this truth to become very personal for God's elect. By His grace and upon the authority of Holy Scripture, without presumption, I personally testify to you that He, God, even before the creation of the world, the Bible says, before even one microscopic matter began to form me in my mother's womb, that He knew me. That He, by the eternal quality of His grace and mercy, embraced me as His own, even as He did His own Son. And that it was the predestinating purpose of God the Father and Christ my Savior that 2,000 years before I ever committed the first sin, and every sin thereafter, He was already for me what the Bible calls the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That precious, Peter calls it precious blood, we'll see in a few verses down. Precious blood, you need to know, not one drop of it would waste, not one drop. Like Peter, the more exacting theologian Paul put it this way in Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, there's our word, foreknowledge, those he purposed to redeem, and every other child of God, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. They're the ones He takes to heaven. It is a complete work of redemption. And I say to you, as we must close, there's more people arriving for church soon, get this pillar of truth that will secure your hope. Let me pull out the words, restate them, and close in prayer. There in Romans 8, Paul, like Peter, is saying, He knew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified, it is finished, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, salvation is of the Lord. Someone has said, who interprets, I believe, their Bible correctly, these words, I agree with them. 
The only thing, friends, that we contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And we go forth into a new week with a living hope. What God began to do in eternity past, He will carry all the way into the eternity future. Well, now, we only have time, I think, for about one verse, Brother Bob, of this great gospel song. But let's sing it. Let's stand together, please. I'm sure you're all familiar with this this morning, so let's sing it with joy as we leave. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Who brought up from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep, Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.